Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Joe and Elizabeth Nava. Joe is a 2007 graduate of Notre Dame, and Elizabeth is an 08 and 10 grad uh, with her Master's of Education as well through the ACE program. So excited to talk to them today. Joe and Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Dan. Hey, thanks, Dan. So if we could begin with some of your backgrounds. Elizabeth, I'll have you start. Where did you grow up and what was the dynamic of your family? So I'm a native Mobilian. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Very proud to be from the Deep South and the Gulf Coast area. So a lot of people are surprised to know that the deep Gulf Coast is very Catholic. So I grew up in a a really wonderful, vibrant Catholic community there in Mobile, went to McGill Tool and Catholic High School. And I was one of three kids. I have two brothers. And so I'm the the princess and (laughs) the only girl. So my family is quite proud to be domers. My little brother is a domer and my grandfather was a domer. So grew up in a, a Notre Dame family and... My parents are still holding down the fort in Mobile, where they are hosts to a lot of ACE teachers, and Mm -hmm. many, many ACE teachers have passed through our home. So we are educators. My mom is a teacher. Uh, Both my brothers are in education. So those are some really important parts of of our family life that were instilled from an early age and encouraged me to go to Notre Dame and then to continue on in the ACE program. Great. Thank you. And Joe, how about for you? Well, I grew up in Garland, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas, Texas, born and raised. And um, my parents are from the Philippines. My mom's family owned a rice farm. My dad's family worked on the rice farm. So in a sense, I'm the son of rice farmers. Mm -hmm. I've got an older brother. It was just the two of us. Um, My older brother, Omar, who's in the Air Force. He's actually a lieutenant colonel, and he works in space weather at the Pentagon right now. Wow. So he's a big deal. (laughs) And then you've got myself who graduated from Notre Dame. So the first thing that's important to share is that my parents are so proud of their sons because they're living the American dream, having immigrated from the Philippines. Yeah. And to send their kids to Catholic education, um, loved my grade school, Good Shepherd Catholic in Garland, and then went to uh, Dallas Jesuit and then made my way up to Notre Dame had no idea what to expect. I saw the movie Rudy <laughs> and I wanted a Catholic education for sure. And Notre Dame was on the top of my list, visited campus, fell in love with it, and then had my parents support. And the joke in my family is that because my brother went to the Air Force Academy, so all the money that would have gone to my brother for his college education uh, magically just got to go to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how kind of I kind of got my golden ticket to go to Notre Dame. Yeah. So I have a lot to be grateful for, for my brother and for all the hard work that my parents did. And that definitely made an impression on me as I studied at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. My dad was a mechanical engineer. And so I think that's why I pursued engineering at first at Notre Dame. Um, My mom, she worked uh, at a hospital. She was a histotechnologist. They're the ones that uh, look at slides and look for cancer and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I think, (laughs) but yeah, they, you know, they made a huge impression on me. And when I got to Notre Dame, started off studying engineering and then added theology because I wanted more of the theology education as well. Mm -hmm. So it took me, it took me five years (laughs) to graduate (laughs) and loved every minute of it. That's great. For both of you, what were some of the 
important moments of faith formation that you remember from your families that really helped establish faith in your life? Well, my mom being a teacher, I have very vivid memories of her teaching us prayers. They always say you can take the girl out of the classroom, but you can't take the classroom out of the girl. So I remember my mom making us learn prayers line by line. In fact, just recently, she gave me this little prayer booklet that we used to have when we were little, and it all came flooding back to me. I remember learning the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, line by line, like one line at a night, like, you know, we'd add another line every night. And so I have a very vivid memory of like bedtime prayers. And then also, kind of a, a, a funny moment that kind of turned a corner for my family in terms of our of our faith life. When I was in the third grade, Sister Therese was my teacher and she had us do Christmas around the world. And I was I got selected to be Sweden and they do like the Santa Lucia tradition where the oldest daughter wears a wreath on her head. Well my mom volunteered to make the wreaths for all the girls that were doing that. And we had this extra garland left over. And mom said, well, I mean, I have all this garland. I might as well make an advent wreath. Well, we'd never had an advent wreath and we'd never really done any like liturgical living in our house. And I remember that that was the first time we ever had an advent wreath. And from then on, we would light the candles every night. And after advent was over, my whole family was like, well, we kind of liked that. Like, let's keep lighting candles at dinner and saying an extra prayer. Hmm. And that was kind of the beginning of our family beginning to live liturgically. So I kind of have memories of just those little instances of kind of learning the faith through the prayers of our of our home and our family rhythm. That's very nice. Thank you. And Joe? Well, first, I grew up in two cultures. I, I grew up in two worlds. The reason I gave a shout out to my grade school experience is because that was like another, a whole nother family growing up with my teachers there. Because you have the Filipino culture at my house where my parents would speak in Tagalog to each other. Mm -hmm. So I grew up not really knowing what they were saying to each other. Okay, I would would definitely know when they were angry with each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's universal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but part of my education, I learned English basically by uh, watching Sesame Street and going through school. Um, that's why Tagalog never stuck around with me growing up. But what I have to share about what I saw from my parents was it was just their example and their how devoted they were to my brother and I and how faith was important. I think I got a really strong uh, moral background from my mom. Mm-hmm. She was always teaching us right and wrong and what's too much and what's not enough. And then from my dad, he is like the model worker. He is St. Joseph. St. Joseph is my patron. And I think of my dad, uh, those early days, those early years, because he just put his head down and he worked his heart out providing for his family, paying for, again, you know, being an immigrant and being able to send their kids to a Catholic education uh, and then a Jesuit education and also be saving up for Notre Dame. Like my mom, my mom always emphasized to me, it's like, you have no idea how poor we were. You have no idea how poor your, your father grew up and it's a miracle that we got this far. So hmm. I definitely grew up with, uh, well, not so much in high school because I definitely had a rebellion stage <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, accepting accepting my identity. But really looking back, uh, just gratitude and definitely my prayer life, my faith life starts with gratitude to God just because of how awesome this journey has been and, and the fact that I get to be a successor to to continue the story of my family. Yeah, that we, I mean, we're all very much products of the people who love us and shape us. And sometimes there's, you know, multiple generations of values passed down and and lived out. 
And so I'm sure that you and your brother are, are really a gift to that legacy of, of so many people who worked hard to, to help you get there. You mentioned Jesuit education, so I assume that was uh, high school. What did you love about the Jesuits? And then you came to Notre Dame, which is a Holy Cross institution. What was the discernment there? Well, with my Jesuit education, I had great experience. I had great friendships. Um, community was big for me. They talk about brotherhood all the time now. Uh, but I definitely, it took me a while to find my community of friends and like-minded guys. It was an all-guys school as well. So I got to go on some faith experiences while I was there that um, was beyond my, I would never have done it on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to go to, to some summer trips and grow in my faith, but also um, go on a silent retreat and just discern using the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Right. And so you know, just just being able to address the deep questions of who am I, who is God, and what is God calling me to do with my life, that was huge for me. And that really discerned me to continue looking at Catholic colleges. I, I only applied to Jesuit schools and Notre Dame. Okay. Um, I knew I wanted to be surrounded by that similar environment that I had at Jesuit. And it wasn't necessarily the Holy Cross spirituality that attracted to me, but I do see a lot of similarities with their emphasis on education. Um, I saw, (laughs) I mean, four years at Jesuit with uh, all boys. I mean, when I made my visits, like, oh, this is just Jesuit community faith, but with girls. (laughs) This is awesome. (laughs) I'll take it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's honestly what attracted me the most. And, you know, you just, you feel at home and it was the same feeling I had in Dallas where it's like, okay, this is home. I can, I can definitely do well here. Yeah, that's great. Elizabeth, for you, what were some of your favorite memories during your time at Notre Dame? Wow. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, I know. right? <laughs> just, just the top couple, if you would. <laughs> All right. Let's see. So pretty early on in my time at Notre Dame, I ended up leading um, a sophomore road trip. No, a fresh, fresh retreat. I did both, but but it was a freshman retreat team when I was a sophomore that really was like the first time I really found my people. And that kind of morphed into this fantastic group. I mean, I think everybody kind of has their their peer group or like their group of people, but mine was particularly, we named ourselves, it was T&D, Thursday night dinner, um, because we would meet on Thursday nights, right, right, in South Dining Hall. Right. <laughs> and um, we would all eat, at, try to snag the Jesus table. And it was just a really fantastic group of people that I still keep in touch with to, today. A lot of late nights, uh, praying the rosary at the grotto with that group, followed by usually the backer or, you know, some fantastic event, (laughs) you know, like everybody does at Notre Dame, you pray the rosary and then you go to the bar. It's fine. (laughs) And then, uh, really loved that group was really into painting ourselves for football games. So I have some fantastic memories of just painting up for football games, spelling out, spelling out random stuff on our, on our, you know, I think we spelled out wake up the echoes, shake down the thunder at some point. We had a lot of people involved. (laughs) So I think, you know, a lot of my best memories involved campus ministry and retreats and service. I did a lot of, uh, I I did several trips to Appalachia and Joe and I actually went on a service trip together to New Orleans. So some of those more like personally formative experiences um, just really stand out as as highlights for me. It's like a teaser to our relationship. 
That's true. Yeah, it's a great lead into Joe. What are, what's your favorite memory? And you should probably say when you met Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. I didn't mention that, but go ahead. <laughs> Man, how would I summarize my experiences at Notre Dame? Yeah, alumni hall, folk choir, engineering, Faso Filipino Filipino American student organization. <laughs> Were you the president? At some point. <laughs> It's been a while. Uh, And Log Chapel Band, Hmm. I would say. So I bought into the whole dorm thing right away, again, because of my all-guys high school experience. So I got bonded really well uh, my freshman year and throughout with uh, a group of guys. We call ourselves the Booyahs (laughs) because we were Section B, 1B. Right. And that was an awesome time. I got involved with the dorm masses with Father George. Shout out Father George. Yeah. And played uh, guitar for dorm masses all five years because <laughs> I lived in the dorm for five years. <laughs> and I was an RA for two. And that was kind of like, that's kind of like a loophole in the system is you can, they kick you out of the <laughs> residence life if you're a fifth year senior. But if you're an RA, they let you stay on. Stay on staff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then. The Notre Dame Folk Choir, I joined my freshman year. That was huge. Uh, that got me out of my shell. That got me comfortable. Most of my deepest friendships are from that choir. Yeah. We got to sing every Sunday at the Basilica. We got to go to the Michigan City Prison. We have got to uh, sing at special events across campus. But most importantly to me is that over the summers, um, I never missed a tour. I've been everywhere, parishes across the United States, Northeast, Southeast, Northwest, and Ireland like three times uh, with them. So uh, just being able to see the the diversity and the beauty of the church throughout all areas of the United States and in Ireland was an amazing experience. And just getting, uh, yeah, getting to see my own universal call to holiness, which is what this podcast is all about, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So to... <laughs> we'll get back to that, though. I mentioned FASO because I needed that as a transition. You know, I definitely felt out of place being a, a Filipino from Dallas, Texas, and uh, needing familiar friendships, familiar food, familiar... Uh... I mean, it was a, it was the same for me in high school, and it's it was the same for me in college, but just having that group to lean on and, and be supported was awesome, and that definitely helped in my transition. Yeah. Um, and then the Log Chapel Band, there's there's another mass. I, I was all about doing music, I think liturgical music in my time at Notre Dame, just to share my gifts. But uh, I got invited with a group of guys, and we played every Tuesday night at the Log Chapel. Mm-hmm. And it was packed. Like, we are busting. We were, we were breaking fire code left and right. <laughs> but that was just another intimate experience of, of singing and joyfully praising God through music and through song. So yeah, a lot of great experiences there. Yeah, I know. It's it's pretty much an impossible question for those of us who love Notre Dame to, hey, sum up what was great about it in, in a few seconds or a few minutes. But well, he didn't mention how you met. So Elizabeth, I'm going to give you that one. How, how did the two of you meet during your time at Notre Dame? Oh, okay. So I was going into my junior year. I only did four years at Notre Dame, but... <laughs> That's okay. Joe was entering his fifth year and I was entering my third year. So we're two years apart. And a friend of mine mentioned like, hey, you should meet 
my boyfriend's friend. I think that you might like him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Like I, he was on my radar, but I was like, he's a fifth year and I'm just a lowly junior. Like, mm-hmm. but Joe was playing guitar for the four seven band. And I was on the leadership team for four seven Catholic fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, you know, I saw him from a distance. I knew who he was. And then that fall I went on NDE which is Notre Dame Encounter, which was kind of a big deal sure. uh, retreat for undergrads. And Joe was the student coordinator. So he was like the lead, the leader, right? Okay. So obviously I'm thinking like, oh, well, any girl here who's single and looking is going to be like crushing on Joe Navo because he's the leader of the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm just like one among many people who's crushing on Joe Nava this weekend because that's what you do on retreats, right? You're like looking for your future spouse. That's right. But I do remember our friend Blair Mancini introduced me to Joe and said, Stu, I want you to meet Joe because my maiden name is Stuart. So everybody called me Stu. Yeah. So that was where we met. Joe, when you met Elizabeth, I mean, did you have any inkling of this might be a person I'm interested in or how did that, how did that develop over the time? She was not on my radar. I was at the time discerning a path to priesthood. Okay. So I was like, okay, she's great. She's a great friend. Could be a great friend, but um, I'm still focused on, on this other thing right now. <laughs> yeah. I think you gave a talk that weekend about your, your discernment of the priesthood. And I was like, well... <laughs> So how, how did you both finally end up together then? When my discernment to the priesthood didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I figured since you're married, but. <laughs> and literally when I got the call, it wasn't, it wasn't a rejection. It was a, which was a, actually a beautiful story in itself. But the, the short end of it is here's me praying, you know, what is it that God's asking of me? And, you know, is priesthood a path? And so I went through some steps and. The answer I got was, well, you know, wait two years. Hmm. So it wasn't an outright rejection, but the fact that I got an answer to my prayers, like I've yeah. been praying for it for so long, like that's a miracle in itself. The wisdom, through the wisdom of the church, uh, as, as much as I was a viable candidate, or thought I was a viable candidate, through the wisdom of the church to get a response and say, think of, you know, explore other options, think of other things. And we started dating a week later. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted, Lord. Yeah free of that and then now explore this relationship yeah that's been kind of in the background so i also have to add that like elizabeth she, she found my heart through food and she gave me this amazing banana pudding <laughs> while i was on duty as an ra uh in alumni hall like who is this girl that would just randomly give me uh, a whole tray like, of oh joe nava i didn't know you're on duty here have some banana pudding Totally knew he was on duty. Totally (laughs) showed up. Right place, right time. There you go. (laughs) Well, it worked out. What was it like when things started to get more serious and you were really thinking about marriage? The timing of our relationship was really poorly timed. So all of this happened spring of my senior year. Right. So I had applied to ACE. Joe is going to be leaving. He had been on campus for six years at this point because he was working on campus and so he's going to be going back to Dallas or, you know, something. He's about to leave campus. I'm about to leave campus. And we're kind of at this crossroads of like, well, it's February and we started dating. So now what? <laughs> Can't quite do the ring by spring, but we have to figure something out. Right. Right. So what's going to happen here? So I had applied to ACE. You know, there was like this remote chance that maybe 
I would get placed in Dallas or Fort Worth because Ace has houses in both of those. So like, oh, well, maybe we'll see what happens. I got placed in Atlanta. So like that was not, you know, not going to be like ideal for for starting out a relationship. But we decided to give it a go and do the long distance thing for a while. And Joe ended up coming back to Dallas and and got a job right away at, at Dallas Jesuit. So he was back at his old high school teaching. So both of us first year teachers, mm-hmm. I was in Atlanta, he's in Dallas. And so we did the classic weekend visits. Thank goodness Southwest flo- flies direct from Dallas to Atlanta. Yeah. So did a couple of those rounds. And I think he came, I think you came to Mobile with me for Thanksgiving. And I visited Dallas a few times and it was very tedious. Um, we would spend a lot of time at night grading with, I don't even, was it FaceTime? It was probably Skype at that point. I don't even know what it was mm-hmm. tech wise, but we would like video chat and also play Scrabble online. Yeah. But uh, so just like, it's like, how do you have a relationship when you're a million miles apart? And uh, it's, it's just really hard. So I would say that that was good in the sense that it gave us really strong communication skills. Yeah. But bad in the sense that every time we were together, it was like a holiday. It was a vacation, right? It's like, oh, you're here visiting. And so it's all like special and fun. And I have to be nice. We're not going to argue. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to fight. We're not going to, you know, deal with any like big issues because Mm -hmm. this is our fun time together to visit. And so, so the marriage question didn't really come around until, I mean, really the rubber hit the road when it was time for me to graduate from ACE. And I had a job on the line potentially back at Notre Dame and, so Joe, <laughs> Joe went to his, his, your boss, your, the, My principal. The, the principal and said, look, this girl is going, maybe going to South Bend. Like I'm, I'm going to go chase her if I have to, hmm. um, if she goes to South Bend, like I'm going to go to South Bend. So immediately I start getting calls from Dallas Jesuit <laughs> saying, there's an opening for a teacher at this school and this school and this school. I've, you know, <laughs> send a resume like we've laid because they didn't want to lose Joe. They didn't care about me, but they didn't want to lose Joe. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, well maybe. I'm sure, that's not true. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I gave it my all on the, in that job and, and that application and just prayed that it would work out however it was supposed to work out. And the answer kind of similar to Joe was I did not get the job in South mm. Bend. And so, um, then it was like, well, guess I'm going to Dallas. Like, what what's left? Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was a little. I think that raised some eyebrows in my family. Just so like, why are you chasing this boy? <laughs> you know, like mm. nice girls, nice girls from Mobile don't don't chase after boys. But pretty quickly, it became clear that this was the right decision. So I ended up yeah here teaching third grade, and Joe's school was just like maybe eight or ten minutes around the corner. We had a unique situation. We lived with, how do you say How do we say this? Okay. There was a girl's apartment and a boy's apartment. (laughs) Let's start with that. Yeah. And in the girl's apartment was me and our friend Katie. And Katie was engaged to Joe's roommate, John Paul. Okay. And so we kind of had this like double dating apartment neighbor situation. Yeah. And we we basically were able to watch John Paul and Katie kind of go through their year of engagement and see that. And while we were still dating. While we were still dating. Sure. What is the what is the day-to-day of dating when you have good days and bad days? And yeah, because that was the first time that you'd had that. I mean, the, living in the same area. Yeah, as adults, not like living in the magical Disney world of Notre Dame where yeah. everything yeah. is great. 
I don't have to do the dishes because I can put them on the conveyor belt and they go away. (laughs) And they just disappear. Not my problem. Yeah, precisely. So that was really great to have kind of like some really up close and personal role models that we were living with day in, day out to see how they navigated that. And then and how they planned a wedding and like all the ins and outs of, of the transition from being engaged to being married. And I, I think that might've been the first time they also were living in the same city. Hmm. So, you know, we were all kind of walking that same path. And so then soon after they got married and I had moved in with another roommate, I had to call my roommate and say, Hey, Hey, does our renter's insurance cover diamond rings? <laughs> Cause Jim just proposed. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I think that's such an important point that, you know, it's it's good to have peers who are can show us the way, or sometimes we're showing others the way in the sense of trying to pursue a good and holy relationship and kind of holding each other accountable and saying, like, we're not the only ones trying to do this the right way. You know, not only just dating and engagement, but even in married life to have other married friends who who are kind of supportive of what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I always I tell people who are who are kind of in early days of marriage or preparing for marriage because Joe and I are a sponsor couple for for engaged couples. And I always say like you need friends who care more about your marriage than they care about you. Hmm. And so to have people who you know when you're having a bad day and you call them or text them to complain about your significant other, they really care more about your marriage than about you, and they will give you honest advice or encouragement one way or the other. And they're not going to you know badmouth your your partner because they care about your marriage. So that's always my advice to them. That's that's great advice for sure. Joe, I'm curious if, if you wouldn't mind, um, you mentioned that you came from a Filipino background. That was a very strong component. You were trying to figure out your own identity through the course of high school and, and undergraduate. And yet you are dating and then get engaged to this Southern Belle from Mobile what what was that dynamic like? How did you how did you kind of navigate those waters? Were there challenges there? I mean, there's definitely a good number of cultural differences in how I was raised, how Elizabeth was raised, and how we do things and operate. But <laughs> I can remember you remember it was it was a short time between, you know, okay, priesthood isn't for me for now and let me start let's start dating Elizabeth. Like when I updated my parents with that. I remember my mom being so happy. <laughs> she was just absolutely happy. She she knew me well enough to say that, you know, my son needs to be married and, yeah. and have children and or at least bring me grandchildren. So, so for, my parents were sold on and knowing Elizabeth and getting to meet her right away. Yeah. They're sometimes more proud of her than they are of me. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> but anyways navigating things i mean it's little things like you know how you have a meal Mm -hmm. we grew up you know not much discussion not much talking again because of the the language difference Mm. elizabeth family they taught they love to talk (laughs) (laughs) that's a good thing (laughs) we like to make conversation like that's an activity it's like making conversation which is something joe's kind of had to get used to Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things i had to get used to uh (laughs) (laughs) There's famously on a refrigerator is a piece of paper that says how to make a lunch. Mm -hmm. And my wife wrote that note with all the different options because she wanted to make sure I I needed to know how to make a good lunch for myself. The proper way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think too, bless your heart. You're not from the deep South. And (laughs) those of us who are from the deep South, 
have a specific, a particular way of communicating, which doesn't always, we don't always say what we mean. And I think that that was a really big uphill battle in our relationship early on that I would say, I would kind of like insinuate something or I would just kind of beat around the bush a little bit, hoping, dropping hints and hoping that you would pick up on what I was saying, Mm -hmm. because that's kind of how we operate in the South. It's just a little bit more polite to just kind of like drop some hints and then you pick up oh, on it. Oh, that's an interesting shirt that you're wearing. Right. So that means <laughs> no way are you leaving the house in that. You need to go take it off and change. <laughs> but that's not what I said. And so I, I had to learn to speak my mind a little bit more directly. Because in my family, that's what we did. My parents were very direct with us. Okay. Just you say what you mean. And in the South, not so much. Yeah. And so that I think that was, yeah, that's that was a, good a hard exa- one. That's a good example. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody, I mean, you talked about marriage preparation and you always talk about families of origin and even people who might be from a similar culture or background still have to figure that out. And sounds like you've learned a lot of things, navigated those things well. What have been some of the joys and, and challenges of married life as you have gotten underway for the past several years? Wow, we've been married eight years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just celebrated our eighth anniversary and the obvious joys are the things that like buying a house, having a baby, having another baby, having a, a good friends, growing together as a couple, getting to know each other, learning new things about each other that you still like uncovering different things about the other person. Those happy, you know, ev- the things that everybody wants, like, mm-hmm. Those are the, the obvious things. And I think that uh, the harder things are the the struggles. I read something somewhere that said that uh, perhaps mar- the point of marriage isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that that's true, that, that there are a lot of things about marriage that are happy. You know, every night before bed, we, we pray with our boys. And uh, one of the prayer prompts is, God help me too. And then they're supposed to fill it in. And, and, uh, when our older son was fairly young, maybe like five or six, he said, God help me to be a saint. Hmm. And of course, Joe and I just stared at each other like, okay, but that's (laughs) kind of become like our, like pretty much we go around the room and everybody answers. And every single night, everybody says, God help me to be a saint. Hmm. And I think eight years in, we've gotten to the point where, the road has taken some turns that we did not expect. And I can only say that, that those things are are helping me to be a saint because when you look at the lives of the saints, like none of them are, are just like happy clappy. Like it's not, you're not a saint because you had a great life and you had all the babies and they were all so cute and you had the nicest house. Like that's not the stories of the saints. Right. The stories of the saints are people who had really uphill challenges and like really difficult things that they faced and they stayed faithful. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of been some of some of our story has been has been struggle. And I, I think that anybody who tries to sell marriage as well, you'll be so happy when you get married is is selling you a, a shallow version of marriage because it's really a crucible for making saints. <laughs> I hope that sells it. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you've got me convinced. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, we, we've talked about this before with other married couples on the podcast, but there's a sense of the vows that I made on my wedding day, they sounded nice, mm-hmm. better for worse and sickness and health and all that. And and yet 
the lived experience of those help those vows come to life, you know, sometimes it's the challenge of I'm sticking to those vows in the midst of this very difficult moment, in, in the midst of this failure or this moment of selfishness, you know, whatever whatever the case may be. But, you know, it's that daily decision to recommit to those vows and, and love. And I love that idea of like, not really about making you happy, but making you holy. I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. Joe, would you kind of give us your sense of all that? So I kind of had this joke when people would ask me early on when we got married, how's, how's married life treating you right now? I would say it's a slow death every day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Elizabeth loved that. (laughs) Love it. Love it. In the sense that who I was is is changing for the better. Yep. And, you know, when we we would be sponsor couples for those preparing for marriage, I would tell the story, say that same silly saying, and explain how myself and uh, Elizabeth are not the same person when we started dating. We're not the same person when we got engaged. We're not the same person when we got married. Even, you know, the joke is like, you know, you have some moments where you're just like, who are you? Like, this is not who I married. Right. (laughs) You know, but also like, who am I right now? Like, who am I to suddenly be buying tools and and having a whole tool set and and mowing the lawn and, you know, when becoming homeowners and this was not what I had imagined for myself. And so like there was a lot of letting go of my old self and what I was interested in and how I would spend my time. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly I've, I, it was transformed from what am I going to do today to what are we going to do today? Mm-hmm. The The important part is that there's, there's yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's death, but there's also resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that's the Paschal mystery. Right. We are living in our marriage. We live up the Paschal mystery every day. So when you ask your question, like, when is, what are the joyful moments? I, I would actually say every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, shucks, Joe. Because <laughs> there's, there's suffering, death, and resurrection every day. And we're becoming someone new. Our family is becoming new every time. And I, I do always call it leveling up like a video game. Yeah. When our sons started talking, when our sons started walking, it's like, all right, level up as a parent. Here's the new thing, you know, and <laughs> suddenly the, the child asks this really deep question. What was the most recent one? I was like, oh, <laughs> probably something about politics. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, good luck. Here we go. <laughs> And then you're you're always faking your way through it, and you're just doing your best and and trying to to answer to that call to to respond to the next level of of marriage and then that next level of of parenting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing like marriage to challenge us uh, out of our selfishness sometimes. Um, and then you throw kids into the mix, and they're especially early on, like they're totally helpless. You can't be selfish. You have to give of yourself and it's late nights and it's diapers and things that aren't glamorous. And yet these are the ways that, you know, we're showing deep love and, and care for each other. So I think there's, there's kind of a natural education that, (laughs) that happens over the course of, of marriage and family life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when Joe mentioned like leveling up, it's not only, we've definitely experienced leveling up in our marriage too. Like, I feel like the first 
the first year of marriage was just a lot of like working out the kinks of communicating well and like the ins and outs of having a budget and going to work and schedule and all those like logistical things. And then we bought a house and like, that's okay. Level up there, like bought the house and then, okay, have kids. That's the next level. And one of the levels that we, that we faced together was with a miscarriage. And Mm. we, I mean, that adds a whole other level to, of, of suffering together. And, you know, we have a saint in heaven and, and that adds a layer to our family story. And then following that is a story of, of secondary infertility and like the thought that, well, we might actually not ever get to have any more babies. And like, Mm. that's the next level is kind of like, okay, well, well now what, and what do we do with that suffering? And what do we do with that difficulty? And um, how do we care for the children in front of us? And what is God asking us to do if, if, you know, having eight babies isn't the plan, then Mm -hmm. what is the plan and kind of, you know, what's, what's next. And we talk with our couples in marriage prep about seasons of marriage and that you kind of have to renew the commitment to good communication and prayer life and staying connected in each of those new seasons. And, you know, at some point we'll be empty nesters and that'll be a different season and there'll be retirement. And, you know, every time you kind of have to go back to the basics of figuring out, how are we as a couple going to operate in this new season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that for sure. I find it interesting, Joe, uh, Elizabeth mentioned that you went back to your high school and teach there, and she went through the ACE program. What's important about education, especially education in a Catholic context that is attractive to both of you? Wow, yeah. I mean, I've gone through Catholic schools all my life, including getting my master's. So Catholic education is very important to me. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's just to share and give back the gift that I received in, again, um, becoming who I was and giving a path, an environment for my students. Um, I, I lead with prayer every morning or before class. And it's always, you know, help us to become the men, the students you call us and create us to be. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully they see their time at uh, Dallas Jesuit as a time to grow and become who who God uh, calls them. And I mean, it's as simple as that, really, just to participate in that and to be an instrument of that. So, I mean, that's what it was for me. Yeah. I would say I have a very vivid memory of talking to my dad I've known from a young age that I I wanted to do what my mom did, which was I I wanted to be a homemaker. And I really love that my mom uses that term. It's not Mm. just a a stay at home mom, because that sounds more like the bonbon life and that that ain't the life we're living over here. (laughs) (laughs) I am making a home and it is hard work. Yeah. But I remember thinking like, okay, I'm going to go to Notre Dame and it's going to cost a lot of money. And for what? Right. Like my whole hope in my life is that that will be a wife and a mother and a homemaker. And I remember my dad just, he has a, a incredibly eloquent and, and wonderful with words and always knows just the right thing to say. But I remember him just calming me down and, and making the point that you don't go to college, you don't get an education just for a job. Like mm-hmm. you, you get an education to become an educated person and to become a citizen of the world. And I am so grateful for my education at Notre Dame, the person that it made me so that I can raise these two boys that God has entrusted me with so that I can serve in our Catholic schools as a volunteer, as a board member, as an advisor to our principal. Mm -hmm. 
I am not working a job that pulls a paycheck, but I value my education because it gives me the ability to think critically. And I, I was in the classroom teaching for five years. And, and I don't, like I said earlier, I don't think you can ever take the classroom out of me. Right. I've been so, so blessed to be a, a mother to an e-learner in the past <laughs> yeah. six months. <laughs> so like I said, you really never take the classroom out of the girl, but you know, to be able to be at home with my kids for now and, and to raise them well, but also to serve our community. I just, my heart and soul go into Catholic education in everything that I do. Like almost every single thing that I do has some purpose for either raising my children or helping the Catholic schools in the Diocese of Dallas to move forward. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredibly important to me because I, I really do see it as forming souls. It's not just for this life, but it's it's eternal. It's eternal work that we're doing to form souls for, as we like to say, a college in heaven. So there you go, Ace. There's your plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really important because... We have almost no, probably no greater influence than, than that of, you know, what we have with our children and the fact that you're so well-rounded and, and spending your time shaping these boys, you know, just like Joe's story, and I'm sure your story too, Elizabeth, those efforts are going to echo through the generations of what they grow up and become and what their families are or the way that they contribute to the church and the world. And so it's, uh, it's all very sacred and, and important work. And I think sometimes we get really bummed out, like looking at the world around us and saying like, what have we come to and what can I do about it? You kind of just feel like you just want to throw your hands up and say like, I, this is just such a mess that we're in right now in our world. And like, what can I do about it? And really the only thing you can do about it is what Mother Teresa tells us is go home and love your family. Like mm. I, I'm only in charge of the people that are in my care and I can only care for the people who are right in front of me. And that's, that's what I have to do. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to to hold on to, especially this year. I mean, you mentioned e-learning and boy, we've all been living through a year to remember in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of hard ways. What has been your experience this year with all the things that we're dealing with? How have you been called to level up this year, if you will? Wow, that's a hard question. So our experience is unique to our family. When everything kind of came crashing down um, with quarantine and e-learning, that was the time when I got really stressed Mm -hmm. because suddenly how I've taught, how I've taught before was suddenly being twisted around to, all right, now to do this in a, in an online environment. Yeah. And it actually came to the case where, and I'm happy to share this uh, because I think it's important to tell people and talk about mental health mm-hmm. that I couldn't sleep for more than 48 hours. And then I was diagnosed uh, by a doctor of having bipolar. Mm-hmm. And that was hard for our family, for sure. It was a big shock. I had to go to a behavioral hospital for seven days in the midst of all of this. And my mm. school was very supportive. Wow. And to be away and my wife and my kids not knowing how I'm doing must have been really hard for them. And Elizabeth will share her side of the story. But basically, yeah, big life change and talk about leveling up. As, as much as I was distracted by the world and wanting certainty and wanting things to be perfect in my classroom, my online classroom, it definitely broke me to a point mm. where I realized that I was having trouble sleeping. I was having I was having this manic episode of just of thoughts 
racing and it wasn't i wasn't up up night up late working on anything i was just my thoughts were just kept racing yeah and i got the time uh, that i needed at the hospital i got medication that i needed and it definitely took a while over the summer for me to find the right medication but i was definitely very anxious about this new school year mm-hmm. going in because um like who knows in my new condition my new my new self uh, what's that going to look like but with therapy with medication i definitely got to a point where i'm stable and uh, that's definitely been a blessing. And um, as much as there was a lot of, of suffering and, and hardship there, carrying the cross throughout all of that, um, I see a lot of grace in how my family has responded, how my friends have responded, and how I've been supported. And I'm still able to give what I'm able to give. Yeah. And as difficult as it was, it uh, really just opened my eyes to, again, what did, what did we say yes to in our marriage? Mm. And which includes, well, that's your side of the story, I guess. (laughs) Well, let me just, if I could interject, thank you, Joe, for sharing that with us. Know of our prayers for you as you kind of navigate this new reality. And I think we all have felt the unbelievable stress at times of this year with, with so many things that have happened. And I think a lot of people are dealing with mental health issues and uh, oftentimes, I think it's been exacerbated by conditions that we've never lived through before. And so I think, you know, that it takes courage to share that. And um, there's going to be a lot of people who appreciate that because they're, they're, they're struggling too. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Elizabeth, anything that you'd like to add from your experience of this? Yeah, I mean, to watch someone you love suffer is really, really hard. And I, I'm sure there are lots of people listening to who have, have experienced, you know, a family member who's had cancer or who's gone through something really difficult. And this is the first time that I've experienced something so just traumatic, honestly, is the word to use for it. Mm-hmm. And it really did bring those vows like right to the forefront of like, what did I promise? And I mean, there, there were days when I really did think through like, okay, but is there a loophole or like, <laughs> where's the escape hatch? <laughs> right. Like, I don't know if I can do another day of this because you, so, I mean, imagine a family crisis of like epic proportion mm-hmm. in a pandemic in which Typically, you know, the way that I would counsel a friend to handle a family crisis is like, like reach out to your village, like get your people, right? Like people need to be taking your kids for you or like bringing you meals or like holding your hand. Well, guess what? You can't do that in March of 2020. Like, right. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nobody. It's just you. And my husband was gone. He was in the hospital. And I'm like, what's happening there? And I've got the kids and there's nobody who really can help me. I mean, luckily, we had some fantastic people who like dropped off meals. And some of Joe's friends reached out and said, how can we help? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I've gone through enough struggle in my life to know when someone asks that, you like tell them. So I was like, can you mow my grass? <laughs> and so yeah. three, three of his friends showed up with their lawnmower. I mean, I think they were glad to get out of their house after a week with their wives and children. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm helping, I promise. <laughs> I promise, yeah. But, you know, I, I went through my own uh, really tough struggle uh, with anxiety. I mean, I'm, I'm an anxious person anyway. Mm-hmm. The, the part of the story we didn't tell about our proposal was Joe asked me to marry him and, and I vomited out of out of anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> which 
which I've come to realize now is actually my, my anxiety. Like that's a, that's a symptom of my anxiety. And so I went through a long period of time where I couldn't eat this summer. I lost a lot of weight. I got like scary. And I finally called my doctor with the, you know, I, I, I was in therapy. Thank goodness. So many therapists are available virtually. We've taken care of so much stuff with our mental health for our family virtually. And so I just encourage anybody who's like on the fence and thinking like, well, I don't know, like it's out there and you can find a therapist who will meet you online and and encourage, highly encourage therapy. I think it's really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. And my therapist and I kind of came to the decision like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta call your doctor. And so I called my doctor and, and ended up getting a prescription for antidepressants, which is very, very helpful. And something that I probably wouldn't have done if other people in my life hadn't shared that. So I share that again, as an encouragement to anybody who's thinking like, I'm not sure if I'm handling this. I'm not sure if this is okay. I would encourage you to talk to your doctor, encourage you to find a therapist. Mm-hmm. And it's made a world of difference uh, for me, for Joe, for our whole family. And I'm, I can say that six months out six plus months out from where we were, we're, we're finally in a place where we're all breathing again. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, there's, there's sunlight coming through and, and there were many, many days that I did not think that that, that might ever happen again. And so mm. really happy to be, I told my therapist, I wanted to be the poster child for mental health. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. And, and again, thank you as well for, for sharing that, you know, very intimate portrait of, of what's uh, what's been happening I do think it'll inspire people I didn't didn't quite know when we started to have this discussion that that was part of it but I'm really touched that that you both shared that with us and I think so many people they're suffering out there but sometimes that that idea of I'm suffering by myself Elizabeth like you said that there's no one else out there and just even knowing that you know here's a couple striving after holiness and they too, you know, are going through ups and and pretty significant downs. I think that that's helpful to people. So let's do then turn to holiness because that's what the podcast is called. And and we're trying. We're tra- we're all trying our best to to get after it. So what have been some of the principles that that you both have lived by, where where you're trying to seek holiness and and help each other live a holy life? I think. First and foremost, stay close to the Eucharist, which again, 2020, kind of hard. Yeah. But even in some of the most difficult days of our summer, when Joe was still very sick and we had not gotten his medication, and I was very sick, to be honest, and, and having a really hard time, we would just take our children to our parish church. We we, we still haven't gone back to Sunday Mass, but our church was open during the day, and we would just mm. go and wrestle our two boys and coax them with snacks and bribes and things like that. And just go sit in the church for, I don't know, like 15 minutes. Like that was really all we could handle, but just especially that for me to be close to our Lord in the blessed sacrament was incredibly healing and, and really, really important. So I would put that first. Yeah. It's the same for me. Somehow, I don't know, throughout all of this, I was able to go through to daily mass and I don't know how to explain it. It's just, I, I needed to go. I needed to be close to Jesus. I needed to receive Jesus. And then I just needed to have that morning routine and I'm still doing it. And it keeps me grounded, keeps me centered, keeps me that quiet space to just open my hands and just say, I've got nothing. Please just help me mm. and be there for me today. Yeah. There's a real humility, a humility in that and realizing what we lack and, and what we rely on God to to fill in there. 
are there have there been any models of holiness for both of you in terms of a holy life and a holy marriage that that come to mind and you'd like to share? Yeah, well, that's actually something else I was going to add about you know ways that we that we encourage each other to holiness. I think a big piece of that for us has to do with surrounding ourselves with people who are also striving after holiness. We we are incredibly privileged to have intimate friendships with a lot of priests and and men in formation, especially through Joe's relationships at Jesuit. We get the privilege of having to getting to spend time with a lot of men in formation to be Jesuits. And sure. uh, many of them have become close friends of our family and have now, thanks be to God, been ordained. And so both them and and some of our incredible diocesan priests here have been really good encouragements for us, but also married couple friends and um, people who are also trying to just live out their their vocation um, to, to marriage. Obviously, I count on my bridesmaids. I, I picked them because I thought that they all had fantastic, you know, that they would be really great role models for me mm-hmm. in living out vocations. And so I am so grateful for, for having a close group of friends that I can rely on. Um, but we've also made new friends here in Dallas. And most of our friends in our wedding were, were like our, you know, friends from high school and college, but our, our parish had a marriage group, like supper club that they formed and they randomly placed people in groups. And we ended up in a a supper club with people who uh, we'd never met before, but ended up being really good friends and um, all kind of lived within walking distance of our house. And we had a great, this is all pre COVID, of course, we had a great great setup where we'd like have one house was for the kids and all the, and the babysitters would be there. And then all the adults would go to the other house and have um, conversation and uh, usually some sort of prompt or, you know, some topic that we talk about. And, And we've made really good friends through that of people who are, who, take marriage seriously and know that it's not something that just happens, but something you have to work on and talk about. And um, so that's been really good for us too. Um, I'm reminded of a talk I gave at uh, my school at a prayer service uh, about holiness. And there's this beautiful stained glass window at our school. And I kind of pointed it out and I mentioned how, I forget who said it, but holiness is who those saints, those people who the light shines through just like the light shines through uh, stained glass windows. Yeah. And when you think of my models, there's in just everyday life like that I encounter people who just have this joy, have this shining light, or people that are just so good at what they do and love what they do. Mm-hmm. That it really kind of resonates with me. And I could, you know, give shout outs to people who I work with, people that I'm close to um, that uh, are really lights for me. But even in my journey over the summer with struggling and coming up to it. Like there's so many saints that I encountered my friends that reached out to me because they could tell there was something wrong mm. with how I was acting. My, the people that were at the behavioral hospital that, you know, as, as much as you might have stereotypes or misunderstandings of, of what goes on there, but these people are really good at what they do and they mm-hmm. so selflessly serve those that are really in, in need and I just had a, I, I called it a retreat, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Forced retreat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I got exactly what I needed and I got the time and the space and, and people that really cared for me. Um, so shout out to Garland Behavioral Health. Uh, <laughs> and then even my conversations with my therapist and with my uh, psychiatrist um, and just how gentle they are and how good at what they do. And so 
there's there's grace um, coming into my life and helping me, um, and all that comes from that grace from God of of people responding to to their vocations. And so you you it goes back to that you know you never know what impact you can have on other people with 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 how you treat them, how you speak to them, and um, all those little things add up. And it definitely made my transition back a lot easier. And and <laughs> Yeah, I have to kind of give a shout out to my students because as difficult as it is uh, <laughs> to teach high school boys, they really do um, shine. The light shines through them as well uh, sometimes and uh, <laughs> inspires me to keep doing what I'm doing. So it's been 13 years now teaching a Jesuit and, uh, you know, I'm still coming back because I've seen that light grow and, and uh, you know, hopefully just more light shines across the world, across the nation and makes this world a better place. Yeah. Well, and that, that really wraps this up well, because I think you both are clearly a light to, you know, your friends, your family, those in your community, the married couples that you sponsor and mentor and, and just sharing your story and being so candid about every, all these aspects of your story. I think this is going to be a light to a lot of people um, who who have all, as I, like I said, going through a tough time. So, Joe and Elizabeth, I just want to thank you for sharing so much with us and being a part of the podcast. It was a really enjoyable conversation for me. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having us, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Love the Notre Dame. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you'd like to be made aware of future episodes of the podcast, you're welcome to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. There, in addition to receiving notification of other episodes of the podcast, you'll also receive a daily gospel reflection. Until next time, we thank you for being with us, and you'll be in our prayers. Mm-hmm.